Company Watch Financial Analytics. Hello and welcome back to the Company Watch Coronavirus podcast. I'm Joe Kettner, CEO of Company Watch, and I'm joined by Nick Hood, Financial and Commercial Risk Analyst. Hello, Nick. Good afternoon, Joe. We are recording today in the afternoon of the 18th of September, and we are going to have a, a bit of a kind of newspaper roundup review, I think, of what's been going on over the last week. As promised, we will have a look at the um, Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee minutes that were released yesterday, and also some minutes from the Treasury Select Committee. So we'll cover off some of the government um, publishing and the the parliamentary publishing. But there's quite a lot of other things um, going on. We've got some great data, again, from local data company who have just been quite heroic in producing some really granular uh, detail on reopening around the country. We've got some news on Property landlords, which in the last, I think it was yesterday, um, the government has extended the forfeiture of um, leases now until the end of the the year. So landlords won't be able to enforce um, lease forfeiture. And we've got some other things to look at, uh, including unemployment, which is a big um, story, which we we want to look at, because clearly that is going to affect a lot of people over over the coming months and and has an impact on consumption, which obviously is what the, the economy in the UK is based on. And And automotive as well, having a look at some investment figures from um, various industries. So it will be it will be quite a quite a wide ranging um, episode today. But hopefully it will be interesting just to pick up some of those um, some of those figures and and try and draw some some ideas and some conclusions. So, Nick, where should we where should we start? Well, I tell you what, let's since it was the big announcement of the week, let's start with unemployment. Yes. Um, The uh, figures came out for unemployment uh, during the three months to the end of July. So that does seem a bit historic in this present situation, but let's talk about it anyway. Um, The headline rate um, for unemployment during that quarter was 4.1%. But interestingly, um, it it was 4.4% for July as a month on its own, and the last week of July is 4.8%. So I think we can see where that one's going. And, you know, the really tragic figure is that 700,000 workers have disappeared from UK payrolls since March. And that's, a, a, that's a big comeback. And we were trying track. to put that in context, don't we? So we we we're estimating that the, that four percent, four point two percent, is about one point two million people. That <clears throat> roughly, roughly mm-hmm. speaking. Now the uh, the the next stage in this unemployment timeline, we've now got a confirmation that <clears throat> at the end of August, approximately three and a half million people were still on furlough. And that's after one month of a very minor increase in the cost of Mm. furloughed workers to to, uh, to employers. And of course, from 1st of September, it got more expensive. And from the 1st of October, it will get much more expensive. And then at the end of um, October, the employers are on their own, apart from the £1,000. That's for January, isn't it? For January. If they keep people through to January, they get £1,000. Mm. And and really, I mean, those numbers are awful. Um, there is some suggestion, um, I think the Bank of England, or maybe it was the MPC, um, uh, that the unemployment uh, rate might go to seven and a half percent. That's right. That's what they're that's what they're predicting until the end of Q4, which Q4. is which is two and a half million people. But it, 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 yes, it's it's 
it's a bit less than that. But and, uh, and of course, you know, I look at that three and a half million on furlough, and mm. and I say to myself, if as many as half of them go back to work, you're going to be adding another one point seven five million. So we're talking about three million people unemployed. <clears throat> Uh, and we don't know how many of those three and a half million are going to go, going to find that they still <clears throat> still got a job or can find alternative employment. But um, it, it it seems to me <clears throat> that this is going to get ugly and probably uglier than most of the official forecasters would like to say at mm. the moment, uh, which is understandable. <clears throat> you know, caution. You don't want to be um, you don't want to be uh, inducing any more concern about unemployment than. Than you know you have to <clears throat> at this point, and 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 the thing I guess that uh, sort of gets under my skin about this is that the brunt of all of this is being borne by the young young people, mm. uh, which is terrible <clears throat> for their life uh, chances, for all manner of mental health issues. But uh, and maybe it doesn't matter, but I, I will say it anyway. It's yet more bad news for two sectors that are spectacularly badly affected still which is fashion and hospitality, yeah. because that's where the young spend, people spend their money. That's where they spend the money. Mm. So that's unemployment. Um, I mean, I suppose it's worth, it's worth picking up on this. And this is, we just discussed it before we started recording the kickstart um, mm. scheme, which the um, chancellor has introduced, which is to try and get um, people between 16 and 24, I believe, who are on universal credit back into work. So there are um, schemes to subsidise um, employees. The problem with that, although that, that seems to be the right idea and it seems to be targeting the people who are going to be most affected, the problem is that you have to have 20 positions in order to apply for the, the scheme. So the smaller companies who may well be thinking, well, that you know, let's have a, one or two openings. I've actually let's got to find other... Have got, but they've got to group together with other um, SMEs or via an agency. To, and I think we found that, didn't we, with the Seabills um, loans, all those problems that, where there was a barrier to entry, it puts people off actually using the the schemes. And it was only when the bounce back with that really zero barrier to entry, it was just a, a kind of basic anti money laundering um, check, which enabled money to get out. So you do wonder whether that that perhaps these good ideas, when it comes to implementation, perhaps might need to be to be rethought. Yes, <clears throat> absolutely. Um, you mentioned automotive. Um, our thoughts about this were triggered by um, a screeching Jeremiah announcement from the Society of Motor Manufacturing yeah. and Traders, SMMT, saying that if there was a no-deal Brexit, that they were predicting £100 billion worth of losses in the automotive sector in the UK. And, and, and again, to put that in context, Automotive is 4% of the UK's GDP, but it's 12% of exports. Mm. And again, reading across, picking up the Bank of England's business survey or confidence survey, mm -hmm. um, highlighted in particular that there were two sectors where there have been significant cuts in investments, in, in business investment of all sorts. One is aviation for obvious reasons. Yeah. The other is automotive. And so... Uh, you know, you can, you, and, and of course, you, the, the two points come together because why would you invest if you're a motor manufacturer until you know what you the shape of Brexit export. is going to be? Yeah, you know and it's interesting, isn't it? Because automotive is one of those sectors that has seen a pickup in um, activity since lockdown li restrictions were, were lifted, and it's been a, a positive. But actually, you know, we think that is more pent up demand 
um, perhaps PCP contracts coming to an end, and you know that they do tend to kind of roll um, roll forward. But clearly, the the, the, the threat of a, a no deal um, Brexit is looming. Um, is looming large and uncertainty. Yeah. And I suppose that that's quite a good time to read across into the Monetary Policy Committee reports that were released yesterday and their um, stats on business investments. So, in the in the MPC minutes, we've said we've seen that business investment had declined by around thirty one percent in Q two twenty twenty, which is enormous. The minutes actually say this is slightly less of a fall than had been expected in August. But even so, that is that's an enormous um, amount of money that's not being um, not being invested. And um, you know, again, the Treasury Committee. I, mean, I mentioned that in the, in the beginning. They were um, taking a range of evidence from from people on the on the debt. Um, burden. So, you know, you think of, we've talked about that before, that some of these loans that businesses are, are taking up, actually they're parts for a rainy day that could be used for investment. You know, there's some anecdotal evidence that that companies were taking up these loans without necessarily having an immediate need for them. Um, but I, I suspect that for the majority, they are being used to to fund current operations. And Torsten Bell from the Resolution Foundation warned about the balance sheet recession and the dangers of that balance sheet recessions um can can bring in terms of the weaker recoveries um because they're just not people are uh, kind of ground down by this millstone of debt um and aren't able then to invest for growing they're just paying and, and there's a and there's a there's a uh, there's a there's another point to that uh, because you know they talk about a balance sheet recession and what we've got going on is debt is rising on one side of the balance sheet one bit of the balance sheet <clears throat> yeah. shows my age when balance sheets were right and left instead of, uh, <laughs> instead of up and down. Um, <clears throat> but uh, so the debt is going up on, on one side of the balance sheet and asset values are dropping mm-hmm. on the other side. And it's not just that they are dropping, it's which assets are dropping because it tends to be property values. Yeah. Uh, you know, we know the sectors, retail, uh, property in, in, in general, but um, they're dropping. Now, that doesn't just change the shape of the balance sheet. It weakens the company's covenant for borrowing. Mm. And that and is typically, the, isn't it, well, the, 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 the comfort, I mean, we, you've talked about this before, the comfort that a, a lender will take is loaning against a property because yes. that's something mm-hmm. actually they can, they can sell the property if they, if they yeah. need to. If they've got um, a property, they uh, they sleep at night. If they haven't, they yeah. may not on on that. So <clears throat> that is a uh, you know that is a worry. Um, sh- while we're talking about property, should we just have a quick <clears throat> look at the scope of the this landlord's? Yes, yeah. So that's uh, quite thing. that's that is a new announcement, isn't it? In the last day, that's been confirmed. I think there were rumours earlier in the week that the um, the provisions would be extended. <clears throat> so just talk yes. us through. It's, it's, it's it, at the moment, it's not the winding up petition. Um, no, but, part, but I, I'm sure that that protection, which is in the um, corporate insolvency and governance act that was passed in July, in the end, um, <clears throat> that that's in there. But uh, at this stage, what it means is that landlords can't forfeit leases mm-hmm. um, for non-payment of, uh, of of rent. And it's interesting that the uh, the property world has reacted to this with an immediate um, screaming headline saying. Uh, that they estimate that commercial landlords by the end of of this year will be owed 4.1 billion pounds in rent arrears 
which is a big number. I know property is a big industry. You know, the values are are a bit sort of lots of noughts, uh, but 4.1 billion is a lot. And do we think, I mean, are we expecting that to be recovered? Certainly not. And, and whether that 4.1 billion is after adjusting for all the uh, the new uh, lease arrangements that um, landlords being forced into by CVAs, I don't know. Yeah. Um, the uh, and within that 4.1 billion, um, you get a little bit of granular analysis because at the same time, um, UK hospitality, which is the umbrella body for pubs, bars, restaurants, etc., mm-hmm. um, came out and said uh, that hospitality tenants already, this is before we get into the next quarter's rent, yeah. um, already owe £760 million in rent arrears. So you can see why everybody's so worried, worried and we, we, we haven't talked yet about what might happen with a two-week lockdown or lots of local lockdowns. Mm. You can see the trouble there and curfews. And, I mean, also that restriction curfews. on, you know, even if it's not a lockdown as such, but the the, the very places that are uh, likely to be restricted in opening hours are the hospitality businesses. I, I know. And the other little straw in the wind, which which worried me slightly, is I mean, remember that the tenant owes has two liabilities um, on on premises, uh, particularly in, in places like shopping centres. Mm. Um, they don't just owe rent; they owe service charges. Mm. They have an obligation to cover the costs of security and insurance and who knows what else. General upkeep, yeah. General upkeep and all the rest of it. And anecdotally, there are landlords now complaining that uh, tenants are withholding service charges as well as rent. And how the landlord is supposed to survive in that situation, mm. you know, anyway, let's not let's not get into the big bad landlord argument, um, which we've we've aired so many times before yeah but it is so much more subtle than that isn't it i think there is a there's very much it's not a, a clear that where the villainry um is on no. you know on those on those landlords that are well capitalized who are not paying yes and equally rents. there are tenants that are very well capitalized and highly profitable that are not paying yeah. their rent because they don't have to yeah nobody can force them to yeah. um moving across you you um mentioned local data company um and i think joe we do need to share the link to this particular yes, bit of yes, research. Yep. What they've done is to publish some stunning data about the percentage of retail and hospitality outlets that have reopened since lockdown lifted. And across the board, 77% of retail and hospitality outlets have now reopened. Uh, and these figures are end of August. Right. Okay. It's pretty up to date, actually. Mm-hmm. It's very up to date, and yeah. and and the only comment they make, but it boy is it an in-your-face comment is, mm. it's great that seventy-seven percent have opened, but what are the hopes for the other twenty-three yeah. percent? And then they go on, and 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 I find this interesting, but I'm a nerd about such things. But what I like about this is, of course. You know, I can bang on endlessly about the retail industry, the hospitality industry, and I'm thinking for our listeners and and, and for company watch clients in general, macro um, industry stats are all very well, but risk is granular. Mm. Risk is, is is small scale, and uh, one of the, the great things. I mean, to give you an example of this of this analysis that hopefully you'll soon be able to access through the link is that it even breaks down the reopening stats by type of restaurant. 
So, for example, um, it's a case of Indian restaurants good because 89% of them are now reopened. But bad news if your risk is is in the Tex-Mex food sector because only 61% of them have reopened. And and inevitably, because the the wet trade, bars and pubs that don't serve food, um, is quite badly affected. because, I mean, if nothing else, the Rishi Dishi uh, deal. Absolutely, it was did, diverting did, people into. I know, but didn't but didn't cover drink. Yeah. Alcohol, yeah. for obvious reasons, it couldn't. Yeah. Um, for, for moral reasons, if nothing else. And, um, but only 66% of bars have reopened. And the research goes on and on and on. And it talks about, it differentiates between the reopening rates, for example, between a town centre and a city centre, pardon me, a commuter town and a seaside town, which Mm. are the worst affected. Yeah, we've we've mentioned that. That was in some earlier research that the local data (coughs) company um, provided, wasn't it? I think they Mm. had some um, some really interesting um, stats on that. So we will will share the link. Yeah, so so, if retail and hospitality is your bag, then lots lots of grist to your mill in risk assessment um, there. And it is true. I mean, that that 23%, I mean, we, we haven't even talked really about the fact that um, of course, the, the health news is is pretty bad. We alluded to the fact that then there are rumours of a, another lockdown um, coming in areas of the north east already um, mm-hmm. under some more more restrictions. And so you, you, you've got to think: well, the summer was probably the the honeymoon period mm-hmm. at the point and the high point at which um, venues would think about reopening. And if they haven't reopened, then are we looking until? Next year, but who knows? Next year. Can you, I mean, and I mean, by next year, I mean, who knows? I mean, bear in mind, as we record at this moment, over 11 million people, so what's that, 16% of the population, are restricted in one way or another mm. across the country. So anyway, enough of that. <laughs> enough of that. Um, it can't all be gloom. Um, no. I wanted to touch on two other points very quickly. Yeah. Um I have a construction background, um, worked in the industry for quite a long time, um, several decades ago. And so I always keep an eye on it. And one of the things I I, I get um, on a regular basis, in fact, bi-weekly, is a list of deals, investment deals, opportunity, business purchase opportunities mm-hmm. that are available. Uh, and it's not restricted to construction. It's right across the board. Suddenly... This week, the two I've had this week are awash the lists with small construction businesses up for sale. Wow. And I think that tells you what you need to know that if you are if you have risk in construction, it's likely to be more intense at the smaller end of the business scale mm. than it is at the top. At the top. Because yeah. as always, one of the things I learned in the construction trade was that um uh, if you were feeling pain, uh, the sooner you transferred it down the uh, down the down the, um, the food chain to the yeah. to, to your subbies, the better. Um, just as it's actually the same in the, with with the grocery trade. Um, if if supermarkets aren't doing well, it's the suppliers that it goes uh, down to the suppliers. Go down. Mm. So just something to watch um, there. And lastly, um, maybe this is a bit nerdy, but this really frightened me. Uh, not sure how many people will be familiar with the concept of dividend recapitalization. No, it's certainly something I hadn't come across. No, well, this is a this is all, this is all about this is a sort of a buzz phrase for companies that borrow money to pay dividends. So they they're not paying dividends out of cash flow; they're paying dividends out of debt. Mm-hmm. 
And the thing that brought this to my attention was a little, a little snippet from Bloomberg. Oh no, it's from the FT. That's right, the FT. Mm -hmm. So far this month, September, so we're just over halfway through it. Twenty-four percent of all the funds raised in the U.S. corporate bond market are going to be used to pay dividends to private equity owners. And that, I mean, that sounds high. That's a quarter. Well, I can tell you it's high because the average percentage used for that purpose over the last two years was 4%. Wow. Suddenly it's 24%. Wow. And I think, um, I, I, I think our listeners... And let's be know, clear, and that is going, the liability is sitting with the company, company. so the private equity being paid out as normal, but the liability is sitting with yeah, the so, company. So the company ends up with a debt, and the private equity owner ends up with Real some cash. cash. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I think everybody knows my view about private equity, and, and they're not all uh, uh, cr- criminals and um, exploiters, but sadly too many of them are, um, is that that looks remarkably to me like the rats heading mm. heading towards the decks and off the ship yeah. um, there. And... and I know that's in America, um, and it's to some extent a reflection on the fact there's a huge appetite in America to invest in the corporate bond market because of the returns there. Mm-hmm. But um, I have to say all my experience over many years is that, that private equity is a pretty joined-up community, and if that's happening in, in, in America, it'll happen here. Yeah. To, the extent, to the extent that the – and, of course, the worrying thing about that is, you know, I know I'm, I'm banging on about uh, private equity again, but – Remember that in earlier episodes, we've talked about the fact that a very high percentage of the high-profile business failures, CVAs and administrations since um, the pandemic started here in the UK have been companies owned by private equity Mm. um, houses who were just not prepared to put more money in. Absolutely their choice, not criticising. You don't have to keep throwing good money on it. No, absolutely. But if this starts happening, this dividend recapitalization starts happening, this is moving up the viability chain. And so you've cleared out the no-hopers by walking away. Now you're looking to get money out of the more viable ones. Because they're actually able to borrow in the market. They're able to borrow. They have the covenant. Mm. They have the profitability maybe um, to do it. So that takes the um, contamination... You're eroding, you're eroding the, the um, viability of these. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're going, and, and bear in mind, private equity investment is, is is quite heavily concentrated in this country into some sectors that are frankly not in great shape. Mm. So, uh, and and they tend to be sectors that very often have quite high levels of employment. So it's another read across into unemployment. Yeah. So end of rent. <laughs> okay, I mean that that is another interesting um, start, and I well, I hope I hope it's been useful to to do that that roundup. It is quite it has quite quite covered a broad range although Nick you've done a very good job in knitting these things um quite neatly together so thank you very much and I suppose the summing up here is you know as we always said uncertainty is such a such a difficult thing to deal with and um you know we've got this this lack of investment um which you know is only going to get worse I would imagine with the with the uncertainty over the health um news and this rumors of a lockdown, but the looming threat of a no deal um Brexit is just adding pressure to this already really tense situation. Um it's interesting that you know we talked about the Bank of England and their their forecasts um back in August not really 
paying much attention to the idea of a no deal um, Brexit because everything was predicated on the fact that there would be an orderly transition to a, a trading arrangement. Um, in the latest minutes, they acknowledged that um, that that is the case, and they said that they will bring out some more um, figures in November. Um, so we we may see some some impact there on on Brexit. Although uh, allegedly we should know by the fifteenth or the thirty first of October, depending if you believe Mr Johnson or Monsieur Barnier um, about the the prospects for for a deal. So we'll obviously keep keep in touch with with developments there, and um, and hopefully there'll there'll be a little bit more more clarity on on that side of things, at least, if not on the virus. So thank you so much, Nick, for Pleasure. a very, very good whistle-stop tour. And um, thank everybody for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.